Why don't take your Bibles and let's turn together to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to read from chapter 11 in a moment, and before that I'm going to read from Genesis. You don't need to look that one up, but Genesis 15. Just one addition to the announcements, and that is that our presbytery uh, here in Philadelphia and the session of this church are committed to making the church a safe place for people who have been abused in any way, shape, or form. And our presbytery is organizing a conference to be held on Saturday, the 23rd of June, here in our church, where Dr. Diane Langberg will be the speaker. The subject is a church or the church as a refuge. Uh, we want to encourage as many people as possible to come to that conference. It's a day conference on a Saturday. I know that's a very difficult thing for, for most of us, but uh, if you can, it would be good for us all to be informed together uh, as much as possible about what's involved in these things. So the early bird registration ends on Tuesday, May the 1st. That's why I'm speaking about it. The early bird, after that, you pay more. So the early bird registration ends on Tuesday. You get more details in the bulletin or call the church office and ask for Helen. Okay, we're going to read from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11. But before we do that, let me read to you from Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And then in Hebrews 11, verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of the heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Thank God that He doesn't always take us at our word. And thank God that He doesn't always take our word with strict literalism. Because our faith and our professions of faith, and even words we sing when we're singing songs, are not actually what we really mean. We'd like to mean them, but they're not actually what we really mean, and God can see our hearts. When God called Abraham, God communicated to this man the gift of faith and the power to exercise that faith, which he did. He believed God. He went out from his home, from his comfortable life, his native land, looking beyond the promised land to the eternal city of God. 
he set out on a pilgrimage towards God Himself. But his going out in faith was only the beginning of his work. God had promised him descendants, and one descendant in particular, one male descendant in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. That was to be Abraham's great work. If he was to be the progenitor of the Messiah, he needed to have a son. Hence our text. The faith of Abraham and his wife Sarah are interwoven in our text. They are, in the language of Peter, heirs together of the grace of faith, the grace of life. But here the spotlight this morning falls not so much on Abraham as on Sarah, his wife. Uh, the language of the original suggests literally, and Sarah herself, or also Sarah herself, and together they're both involved. The, the, the Greek grammar involves both Sarah and Abraham in the way in which the, the language is framed. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, to conceive a progeny, to, dis, to, to conceive a posterity. Together they believed and they founded a dynasty or a dynasty. When we read of these men and women of God then, we must not allow divinity to obscure humanity. When we read these Old Testament saints, they're saints. In other words, there's an element of divinity about them. God has been at work in their lives. God has been calling them to Himself, setting them apart by His grace, making them His own people. That's all a work of God. Giving them the grace of faith, that's a work of God. Giving them the, the Holy Spirit to give them new and spiritual life, which is a work of God. There is much about the divinity in the making of a Christian. But if we only focus on the divinity and don't remember the humanity, then our understanding of who they are will become confused. These people had, by the power of the Holy Spirit, been given the gift of faith. But having the gift of faith does not preclude moments of doubt, discouragement, or disbelief. Those of us who are justified by faith are still, to use Martin Luther's Latin dictum, simul justus et peccator, simultaneously, one and the same time, justified and sinful. That is the condition of the believer until we reach the perfection of glory. Because faith, although it's a gift of God, not everyone has it, not everyone believes in God. And if you do this morning, then that is an amazing work of God in your heart. But our faith is liable to change, just as our creaturely nature is liable to change. There is this ebb and flow in our response to God. Even though faith is the instrument which God uses for our salvation, it is only an instrument. It's not faith that saves, but what we believe in that saves. Let me illustrate this from our shorter catechism. The Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. 
Or again, faith is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered to us in the gospel. In all this, you notice there is not one hint of emphasis on the strength of our faith or the perfection of our faith. It is the object of our faith that is in view. It is that our faith is placed in Christ alone. And you can see that this is precisely how Sarah's faith is described here. She considered him faithful who had promised. Hers was a genuine, genuine saving faith. And I want to say something about the one in whom she trusted, therefore. I want to talk about the one she trusted who can overcome difficulties, can overcome disbelief, and can overcome death. First of all, the one she trusted can overcome difficulties. And you can see immediately on the surface of the passage what the problem was. First of all, she was barren, and secondly, she was beyond the years, the menopause. She was beyond the menopause. Let's put it frankly and bluntly. She did not have the power to conceive naturally. That was the problem. Everything was, against, was stacked against this woman. And that was a tragedy for her. Just as it is a tragedy for every woman who would like to have children of her own, and I know some of you can't, and you identify with this sad part of Sarah's story this morning. But the physical reality was not the only part of her story. It was accentuated and compounded by a spiritual reality. Abraham, her husband, by a special revelation of God, had been given a promise a long time before, which, in order that that promise would be fulfilled, involved him and Sarah becoming parents. Here were God's words. I will make of you a great nation, and in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12. When they doubted that, an angel came to them, and God's word was this, your very own son will be your heir. And we read how it was that he was taken outside and told to look up to the heavens and to see the stars. And if you're able to count them, then he said, so shall your offspring be. And it was in believing that promise that we are told his relationship with God was established. He believed God, and it was credited to him, counted to him, as righteousness in the eyes of God. And what we are told here, as we read these words in verse 11, is that Sarah shared in those promises with her husband, that she believed in those promises along with her husband, and that the Word of God compounded her natural difficulties. Now, I'm very conscious that Sunday by Sunday as I preach and we worship, I'm looking into the eyes of people who carry private 
burdens, who bear unknown sorrows. It's my earnest prayer and has been all week that my casual reference to infertility this morning will not act as a stab wound in your heart today. And there are others here. That's not your problem, perhaps. Your issue is something else. But you share in your own particular tragedy, and the Word of God accentuates that tragedy sometimes. The Word of God complicates it. You see, there are those flashpoints in all of our lives, I think, where the Word of God and the promises of God in particular and our human experiences collide. That's a blinding reality for some of us in this room. I know that for others of us in this room, it's a mystifying reality. Many of you, many, many of you, I'm glad to say, are young and strong and successful. Your circumstances are happy. Your prospects are bright. Your optimism is irrepressible. Keep it that way for as long as you can, because we benefit from it. But to every one of us, I would say, we are fragile and fallen people. We live in a world of change and decay. We will inevitably have to come to terms with failures as well as successes, with losses as well as gains, with God's no as well as with God's yes. It's the reality of life under the sun. God gave to Abraham and his wife Sarah great and precious promises. He gave them in such a way that every night they went out and looked at the night sky. They were reminded of the promises of God. I wonder if the two of them would lie on the ground and try counting them together and end up giggling at the very prospect of what God was actually getting at in that promise. And maybe they cried together as they realized how impossible it all seemed. God doesn't point us to the night sky, but He has His own way of interrupting our lives. He points us back to the Scripture, to the promises of God. He points us back there, and sometimes we wonder at the prospect, and sometimes we cry at the impossibility of it all. The one Sarah trusted can overcome difficulties. And secondly, the one Sarah trusted can overcome disbelief. I imagine you're thinking to yourself, what does he mean by disbelief when we're talking about these words this morning, by faith, Sarah? But the reality is, you see, that true faith does not always get on the, an easy ride in this world. True faith is not always on the right side of the decision-making. These people, Abraham and Sarah together, believed God. They believed Him. They believed in God. They believed that God meant what He said. But as time passed, they began to wonder to themselves whether God intended to keep His Word if they took creative action to help Him. That's the whole business of that conversation that we read together from chapter 15 of Genesis. 
they had this beloved servant called Eliezer, who technically speaking, because he was part of the, the larger household of Abraham and his family, was going to be an heir of everything that Abraham would leave. And Abraham brings his name up to God. And he says, supposing we get a good bride for Eliezer, and they have a child, and their child becomes our child and inherits, inherits the estate, wouldn't that, wouldn't that just fulfill your word for us? That's when they have this conversation. And God says to him in Genesis 15, your very own son shall be your heir. Then it was Sarah's turn to get creative with the providence of God. She too had a bright idea to help God out in keeping His promise. She would make her maid Hagar the, inst the instrument of God's providence. She was a member of the household. If Abraham slept with her, they had a child, that child would become their child. This story, by the way, comes with the warning not to be tried by anyone else. This incident is not what the writer meant when he says, by faith, Sarah. Manipulating circumstances, manufacturing providences. And when I talk about that, I'm not talking about the means and methods you may have to use to address issues like the issue we're addressing this morning. These biblical women are unique, both in their circumstances, maybe not unique in their circumstances, but unique in God's purpose and plan, as we, sh we shall see, uh, and we'll unpack that later. So, but the principle remains the same. Manipulating circumstances, manufacturing providences may indicate that you believe God's Word to be true, but they may also demonstrate that you question God's ability to keep His Word. You see, there's a principle we need to apply to every area of church life and every area of Christian living. J. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, put it like this, God's work done in God's way will not lack God's blessing. God's work done in God's way will not lack God's blessing. And so we find another story in Sarah's life, a little vignette that's told in Genesis 18. Three visitors come to visit the family one day. They're obviously supernatural beings, probably angels. They came from the Lord. They spoke as the Lord. Abraham honors them highly. Together, he and Sarah make a very special meal to entertain them. In fact, in chapter 13 of Hebrews, we read about entertaining angels unawares, and the writer is no doubt looking back to this incident we read about in Genesis 18. And one of the angels has a prediction for Abraham. The prediction is that within one year, when he comes back to visit, Sarah and Abraham will have a son. This is the words, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. The Bible says that while the angel's inside the tent talking to Abraham and giving him this promise, Sarah is outside eavesdropping. Well, it wasn't her fault. It was a tent. I mean, it wasn't like she was at the, 
at the keyhole or anything like that, or she had some device against the wall. I mean, it was a tent, for goodness sake. She couldn't help but overhear. And as she hears this, we're told that she laughed inside. You know, not really, ha, 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 ha. Who laughs like that? Anyway, but inside, quietly, to herself. That's what the text says. She laughed to herself, it says. It was a laugh of incredulity. She thought in her head, after I am worn out, my Lord and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? In other words, this is absolute impossibility. She laughed. And maybe you've laughed inwardly or laughed out loud at some of the Bible's claims, some of the Bible's promises. And you, like she, may have received those promises with disbelief. But we need to know that our disbelief, actually everything we are and do, registers in heaven. Almost simultaneously with her silent laugh, the Lord said to Abraham, so that she heard it, why did Sarah laugh and say and repeated everything she thought? She was confronted by a reality, by the reality of a God who sees and a God who hears. And her laughter was turned to godly fear. She had laughed in disbelief out of the impossibility of the thing. Now she's exposed. God saw. God heard. And she equivocates. At least that's one way of reading it. Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. Although I read a commentator this morning saying she didn't really deny it. What she was denying was that she believed that anymore. Because the angel knew, the Lord knew, what she was thinking. It says in the text in Genesis 18:15 that she was afraid. And the angel said to her, no, you did laugh. You did laugh, and it registered in heaven. But her godly fear strengthened her faith. She realized at that moment who she was dealing with. She perhaps up to that point had thought, you know, I believe in my husband's God. I believe that my husband's God is my God. All that she had learned about God and all that God had to say had been mediated to her through her husband up to this point in her life. But at this moment, she realized that Abraham's God was her God too. That the God that she worshipped knew her, knew her as a person, knew her through and through, knew what was on her mind, knew what her problems were, her difficulties were, what her concerns were, her anxieties were, was concerned about her, loved her. She understood that this God in whom she had put her trust and devotion wanted a relationship with her every bit as much as a relationship with Abraham, her husband. And the angel pressed home the word. In fact, the angel speaking as the Lord quotes the Lord. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Here is Sarah confronted with the living God who is at work even where there are no outward visible signs of His presence and His act. She believed. 
She was not laughing now. She was believing now. She considered him faithful, who had promised, the writer says. She saw the invisible. She saw the impossible. She believed things that were unseen. And her fear was her faith. She saw that Abraham's God was her God. And it strengthened her faith. And you see, by believing the promise, she was believing in Christ. He was the seed of Abraham. He was the one seed who was going to be a blessing to all the nations of the world, represented one way or another by all of us in this room and listening to the sermon this morning. The message that she heard was that nothing was too hard for the Lord. This is the Lord's word about the Lord. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And the weight of that word comes from the miracle of His knowing her, knowing her heart, knowing what was on her mind. Divine revelation is God's unusual way of acting in the world. Holy Scripture is one of God's miraculous acts which breaks the flow of history and introduces a novelty into human drama and provides us with a word that comes from outside of created reality, a word that breaks all the bounds and barriers and speaks to us in a variety of ways. We have several hundred people in the room this morning. And the Word of God, this Word of God will not come to every one of us in the same way, saying the same thing, addressing the same issue. It will come to you where you are, will say something. One thing in this entire sermon will say something to your heart. Some of you have stopped listening because you're focusing on that one thing right now. I want to slap you. Come back. But seriously, let, it, let whatever God says to you from His Word be the Word of God specially for you personally. That's how it works. What Sarah heard from the, from the angel, we hear from the Scripture, which is the very Word of God, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what has never been conceived by the mind of man has been conveyed, communicated in spiritual words to spiritual people, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Sarah's case teaches us that the possibility of a creature receiving divine revelation is not primarily a matter of human capacity. By nature, we have prejudiced minds, we have skeptical instincts, we have resistant hearts and stubborn wills. And yet, in spite of that, God can communicate with us. By nature, we are sinners. And even in a state of grace, we are recovering sinners until we get to the perfection of glory. Receiving God's revelation is a work of the triune God who is powerfully able to make Himself known to His creatures through His Word, even if it's overheard, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me, let me tease out what this phrase means, she considered him faithful, who had promised. One of the great commentators in Hebrews is John Owen. It's six volumes, this much. You, you have to do a lot of reading to get anything that's quotable in any kind of small way. Well, I'm going to read a quotation from him, and then I'll tell you what it means, hopefully. 
God's faithfulness is the unchangeableness, unchangeableness of his purpose and the counsel of his will, proceeding from the immutability of his nature as accompanied with almighty power for their accomplishment as declared in the Word. I think actually it's a very good definition of these words. She considered him faithful. Him. That's where she started. She started with this. God is immutable, which means unchangeable. Unchangeable in his nature. Which means that when God purposes something or wills something or says something, all of those things take on the nature of the one who said them. He is unchangeable, therefore his purpose, his will, and his word are totally unchangeable. So when you add that to his almighty, irresistible, limitless power, then everything God says, that is everything that God purposes, wills, and announces, will be accomplished. That's what it means. She considered him faithful. The language is thought, consideration, contemplation. She worked it out that he is faithful who promised. Sarah laughed until she knew that this was not a word spoken in jest, but a promise made in earnest. Now, I want you to notice how this story is told in Hebrews 11. This is a catalog of faith. By faith, Sarah received power since she considered him faithful who had promised. Do you see what's missing in that account? It should be blindingly obvious that what's missing in the account is her disbelief. Isn't that interesting? What does God talk about? Her faith. But when you read the story, go back to Genesis. Read it today, this afternoon, when you have nothing better to do, or you're going to have your nap before you nap. It'll, it'll give you a nap if you read it. Uh, it's really, you read the story, and like they're making mistakes all over the place, the two of them, Abraham and Sarah. They, they, they disbelief, distrust, doubt. It's all there. But here in the great summary of faith, what does God memorialize? It's their faith He memorializes. Later on in, chapter, in this chapter, in verse 31, Rahab is remembered. Remember Rahab? She's remembered in the Old Testament for what? For telling a lie that saved the spies. You remember? God used her lie to save the spies. But there is no reference to that in the account of her faith. In, jo in James chapter 5, there's a mention of Job. And the emphasis there is on the patience of Job. <laughs> but if you read, if you've got the stamina, if you read the book of Job, it's a chunky book, you find that there are many points in which Job is impatient. Impatient. 
But what God remembers is the patience of Job. Here there is no reference to her laughter, only her faith. And beloved, I want you to take from this that God accepts and works with your weak faith. He doesn't ignore even a spark of saving faith, but fans it into a flame. Our natural tendency when we are referring to other people is to ignore the good in them and to remember the one failure in their life. Or what does God do? God pardons sin and remembers their good. Remember in the parable of the prodigal son, the elder brother recited his younger brother's torrid past while his father forgot it all and received him to mercy. That's what God does with us this morning. The bottom line then is that our faith is liable to change, now weak, now strong. Like the disciples who came to Jesus and said to Him, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Sarah, in the end, gave glory to God by a firm, heartfelt closure with His promises. And you read what it said of her here. We're told that faith rests on God's properties. That's a technical word for everything that is in God, who God is in Himself, His love, His, His, uh, His uh, faithfulness, and so on. Faith rests on God's properties, and it rests on God's promises, what He has said and promised to His people. Well, the one Sarah trusted can overcome difficulties and disbelief, and lastly, can overcome death. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. She had been told, nothing is too hard for the Lord. Everything was out of her hands. She received power. She did not cooperate with God's grace. She gave up trying to manipulate providence. And I say again that this is unique to Sarah and is not saying a word to someone here who is struggling with, with the various ways in which perhaps we can find medical help for a medical problem. Please do not take this and apply it wrongly. We are to apply this spiritually because she is standing out here in the Scripture as part of God's plan for the, for the coming of the Messiah. Now she is no longer manipulating providence. She's waiting, and in due time, God gives her the grace that she needs. Corrie ten Boom tells of asking her father, Father, what is it like to die? And he answered her, like this, when we take the train to Amsterdam, when do I give you the ticket to hand to the guard? And she replied, just before we get off the train. Her father said to her, that's the way it is with God. He doesn't give you what you need until you need it. There will be dying grace, brothers and sisters, but not till you're dying. He gives grace for whatever crisis and trial you have to face when you need it. He doesn't give it ahead of time because you don't need it ahead of time. You need it when the crisis comes. And God gives more grace. 
He waited until Abram and Sarah, Abram was 100, Sarah was 90, and then gave them power to conceive. And Sarah is one of three great miraculous conceptions in Scripture. Sarah, Hannah, and Elizabeth. Great miracles. Thomas Aquinas in his commentary in Hebrews says it was necessary that Christ's birth from the Virgin be prefigured by certain things, to prepare souls to believe. But it could not be prefigured by something that was equal to the main event. A figure is not the same thing as the thing it prefigures. Sarah, Hannah, and Elizabeth stand out in that God took them in their utter need, did a miracle in their lives, and they had families. Mary stands alone by the direct work of the Holy Spirit. She is given the Christ child. Well, we have no time for verse 12, but I'll read it. Therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Are we to take this literally, by the way? If you read the Bible, you'll soon find the Bible uses hyperbole all the time. Do you know what hyperbole is? It's exaggeration for effect. It's what preachers do all the time. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a poet. I mean, I'm not really a poet. But I'm poetic in my, in my, in my spirit. That's what, I, that's what I read for fun, okay? Poem, poems, novels, that kind of stuff. My wife studied chemistry, read chemistry at Trinity College, Dublin. She does not get nuances of things. You call a spade a spade. If you say something, you say, I knew X. She'll wonder whether I mean I knew all of the details of it. I know this or I know that or whatever. It's, this is the way it is. I'm all over the place. The Bible's all, the reason we preachers are like this is that that's the way the Bible is all the time. There's, there's expressions in the Bible that are meant to have an effect upon us. It's an exaggeration for effect. And the impression this is meant to give you is that there will be many, many people who will not only share the genetic connection with Abraham, but the faith connection to Abraham. We think of the billions of Christians in the planet right now who share a direct line to Abraham. It's one of the amazing promises of God. In Revelation, there will be a multitude that no one could number. And in the providence of God, you and I and multitudes will be in heaven because of the faith of these two people that God used with all of their doubts, all of their weakness, all of their inadequacy. He used them for His glory. Let's pray.
Father, we pray for that faith that laughs at impossibilities and cries out, it shall be done. Help us to rest our faith in Christ, who has already been raised from the dead and is exalted to heaven and is able to do far more than we can ever ask or think out of the riches of His grace towards us. In His strong name we pray. Amen.